Hello, and welcome to this inaugural edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. In this episode, we discuss how we lost the Christian mind. Joining me are Dr. J.P. Moreland and Dr. Stan Wallace. J.P. and Stan, welcome. So good to be here. Thanks, Jordan. I would really love to know about how you guys got to know each other and what this friendship has been like and meant to you over the years. Stan, you want to lead off on that? Sure. The the year was 1987, and I was doing student ministry with a a large campus minister here in the U.S., and I was in my third year and just getting getting nowhere uh, because the students were asking me questions that, frankly, I had just not had a chance to think much about. And uh, the ministry offered summer seminary courses where we could go and get an intensive uh, you know, drinking from a fire hose, so to speak, in different issues in theology and Christian thought and what whatnot. And uh, that summer, summer of 87, I took uh, your class, Philosophical Apologetics. And uh, it was a fabulous time. I couldn't keep up with most of it. I really struggled with readings and lectures, but, you know, and worked hard and got got some things figured out and uh, went back to campus and had something to offer. And I really saw as a result, uh, students come to faith and believing students grow in their faith as we talked about issues. And so I just kept coming back for more. And by about the fourth summer, uh, JP, I remember you turning to me. I was uh, at the podium after a lecture, uh, you know, picking your brain on something you had said. And you finally looked at me and said, look, Stan, you, you just got to get this more than piecemeal come study with me. I'm, uh, I'm going to be starting a, a new MA in, in philosophy at Talbot next fall. Why don't you, why don't you come work with me? And that's really all it took. And uh, <laughs> a year later, I moved my family out to LA and uh, there's just 13 of us in that first class. So it was a pretty small, intimate group and really got to know you and the others. And you know, just have had the privilege to stay in touch since. And, you know, you've really become a mentor and a, a, a dear friend. So it's been a, one of the great blessings in my life just to have had a chance to get to know you in that context. And now it's been, what, 35, 40 years uh, later to still call you my friend. I remember those events. I came to Jesus uh, at the University of Missouri in 1968. I was a chemistry major and I heard a presentation uh, that gave historical evidence that uh, the Gospels were reliable and Jesus rose from the dead. I was extremely impressed and interested. And after three, four weeks of uh, investigation, I I came to Christ. And, uh, of course, I uh, went into ministry, a vocational. And uh, I do remember that most people in those days weren't particularly into studying or uh, dealing with hard questions. Hmm. And, and I responded to people that were interested in that. And you were one of those. And I remember the class that you took with me. Do you really? I certainly do. Yeah. It's amazing. It is, but I do remember it. And I remember your earnestness and uh, your eagerness and hunger. Uh, And you were bright. And I knew that if you combine that with uh, a passion, that a person could uh, become a very dangerous believer uh, (laughs) over the long haul. 
And that's why I invited you to come and study with me, because I was looking for people like you Mm. who were willing to pay a price uh, to uh, learn why they believed what they believed and who could graciously and non-defensively articulate a Christian view of the world and different things in the public square of ideas uh, without having to be angry or upset or anything like that. And you and I have maintained a friendship ever since, and we've worked together. I have been so proud of uh, what you've done, and uh, I just thankful for this opportunity to connect again and to work together. But it's been a long relationship, uh, Jordan, and we have uh, been co-laborers and, and brothers and friends. I appreciate those words. Wonderful. You're both really passionate about communicating the importance of loving God with our minds. So how did you individually get interested in this issue? When I became a Christian, it was the 60s. And there was every kind of ideology uh, that you could imagine floating in the air or in the drinking water. And I was a kind of a typical non-Christian. I, I was in a social fraternity. Uh, I enjoyed chasing uh, attractive women. And uh, I, I loved to, to drink on the weekends. And I'll admit that there was a big hole deep down in my life. But nevertheless, those were things that gave me a little bit of a respite or joy. Hmm. So when I heard the claims of Christ... The fundamental thing I really wanted to know is, is this stuff true? Because, uh, Jordan, I realized that if this was true, then this was not a hobby. Mm. Uh, This was all or nothing. Uh, And if it wasn't true, well, then I wanted to keep kind of doing what I was doing. And so I, I didn't so much need to know if it worked or if it would change my life. That was important to me, don't get me wrong. But I wasn't willing to grab a hold of something just because it helped me if I didn't deep down think that there was a case for its being true. Hmm. So I think that was the big deal to me. And uh, I began to see that so many Christians were being bullied hmm. and, and made fun of because they were taking this blind faith step. And I knew that wasn't true. I mean, maybe they did, but they didn't have to, that there was a huge mountain of evidence for this thing. So I I wanted to go into graduate work in philosophy so I could perhaps offer training and equipping to help other people be confident that they don't need to fear uh, arguments because Christianity can withstand it. My story is similar, but some, in some ways different. I, uh, I didn't have a church background at all and uh, got into high school and uh, began to, again, do the same things you'd mentioned in terms of drinking quite a bit and uh, chasing girls and this and that. And, um, and I came to a point where uh, I really uh, had made those two things idols and that was my identity and uh and the lord worked in my junior year to in very uh, direct ways remove both of those those things from my life and uh 
I had been for about uh, at that point nine months in this conversation with a, a a girl who had grown up Jewish but had come to faith in Christ uh, during her freshman year of high school. She was a year younger than me, and uh, I threw every question at her that I could. I was sort of the village atheist, gave Christians a hard time, uh, was known for being pretty belligerent, and uh, so I just hit her with everything I had. And she was, she was not defensive, but she was very committed to answering my questions and not just setting them aside. So she would come back with what I found to be quite strong answers to the objections to the Christian faith I was raising. And then I'd raise some more. And so she'd go back and do her research and bring back to me some good answers. And uh, long story short, about a year later, uh, when I had lost these other idols I'd looked to for meaning and purpose, uh, I went back to her finally and said, Gail, tell me what the, uh, the thing is you've been wanting to tell me for a year that I've been, that I've been setting aside to ask you all these questions. Uh, you've answered my questions. Now I want to know uh, what is it you need to tell me? What's changed your life? So for me, it was, primarily seeing her life change in very dramatic ways that convinced me it was true, even before I started to look at all the, the evidence. Mm. And that was more of a smokescreen for me that I was raising. But uh, I was glad that we had spent a year talking about those issues so that when I was uh, ready to hear the gospel, I had a background that, okay, there's reasons people believe this is not just a blind leap of faith. Mm. And uh, that's how I ended up coming to faith that spring of my junior year went off to university and continued to grow. And then uh, of course, into, into ministry and uh, increasingly was either asking questions myself or being asked questions by others that were forcing me to do the same thing, to go back to the, uh, the literature, to study more, to read people like UJP and others who had thought about these issues and, and come, come to answers either for myself or for others. Hmm. Stan, I wonder if you can relate to this. Uh, it wasn't su- just the specific answers that I got, which were tremendously helpful. It was the simple fact that there were answers. I, yeah. I, yeah. I was raised to believe religion and reason had absolutely nothing to do with each other, and that Christianity was a matter of simply acceptance by, by faith without any need for any kind of backing. And when I first heard a talk where a person was actually laying out a case that the Gospels were historically reliable, right. I, the, the very fact that that was happening was enough to shatter my categories. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so it probably shocked me, even though I don't know that I understood everything he said, the speaker but it it whetted my appetite for, for can you relate to that i sure can and that's what surprised me when i asked gail the first set of questions i thought well we're done you know she'll move on and somebody else will be her project uh, because i'd ask a lot of other christians in the high school uh these questions and nobody answered me they all said well you just need to believe you don't have faith mm-hmm. that's not uh, that's not what you should do you shouldn't question and so i just thought that'd be where we'd end the conversation again and then when she actually came back and said no there's good reasons to believe this and here's where they are and here's who you can read to get a little more on that i quite frankly didn't know what to say and so mm-hmm. you know my reflex was well yeah but what about 
and then raise something else. But it certainly said to me as I was in my more reflective moments that, okay, this is not what I thought it was. This is something that's actually got some substance to it, this Christianity thing. And I need, I need to start thinking about this. Mm, wow. I think what I, what I see between your two stories and even what I hear often from friends of mine and things that I've experienced is that when we bring a question in a faith community, it is often met with um, fear that there isn't an answer. Uh, I, I remember thinking and asking pastors and saying, I think I'm going to ask the question that's going to undo God. And what if I ask that question, right. uh, you know, what, what then, um, both of you had the humility and the understanding to that when people came to you with those questions, or when you came with those questions, the people that helped you went and looked for the answers, or showed you where to go. Uh, That's a huge, I mean, Barna group did some research probably eight years ago. I think they released a book called you lost me. That was the culmination of their research on millennials specifically and why they were leaving the church. And one of the big reasons was I'm not getting answers to my questions. And I, I think it's fascinating. And I was even talking to a seminarian the other day and I said, Oh, you know, I happen to know one of his professors or know of one of them. And I asked, you know, what did you think of their work? We were kind of digging down a little bit and he looked at me and he said, you know, in the end, all you really need is a relationship with Jesus and all this other stuff doesn't really matter. And I thought, Oh man, how many times have I heard that before? Well, that's, that's such a it, it, it's such a sad statement because why does it have to be an either or? Mm. If you're a father or a mother, and you have more than one child, you learn immediately that they're different. You, they don't both come out of the same womb. It doesn't seem like. I mean, they're just <laughs> come out different. And uh, what worked with one doesn't work with the other. And if you're going to love your kids, what you have to do is to learn things about that personality type and what, how they learn, uh, what kind of things hurt them and what help. And what worked with one of my daughters, I have two married daughters now, didn't work with the others. So I had to study and read books on assessing, like there's a book, how to, how to gr- grow successful daughters. Well, and I wanted to be careful. I understood what they meant by successful, mm-hmm. but it turned out it meant emotionally healthy. And then there are other things, but, but my study helped me learn how to have a relationship more effectively. And it's the same with my wife or, or anything mm-hmm. else. And so, uh, it, it actually is a both and, and that, that illustrates uh, why I think that's true. Mm. Yeah. And it can be hard to find someone who can connect the intellectual world and the spiritual world. And JP, you've left us a marvelous legacy of this. Well, I thank you. I think Stan and his work is doing the same thing. And I, I hope those listening to us as we speak month after month uh, will will join us in bring, bringing your own 
uh, questions and thoughts and, and just be willing to learn like I start and I'm still learning. But uh, that, that's why things like this are so important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Jordan, I've had some similar conversations with folks in seminary. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I had this experience regularly during my studies. I think this isn't the exception. This is the rule that our seminaries tend to teach our pastors to be somewhat unengaged and not as committed to the life of the mind. And that then translates, of course, into those they they shepherd. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I know my colleagues at Talbot, and I think that they would all very much be interested in cultivating uh, the life of the mind. But the problem is that when you're looking at 50 students in a classroom and and they're they've signed on because there's certain things that they want, it it becomes a hard thing to shape them, especially if you only have access to them, you know, nine hours a week. And that's, that's a huge problem, Stan. And Mm -hmm. my, my issue with it is that this attitude assumes that what people feel they need is what they ought to feel they need. And so if I go and try to figure out how to take my seminary education and apply it to the ministry that I imagine myself having in this or a future church, uh, that can be exceptionally dangerous because you can be out of gas in three or four years if the audience changes. And so part of ministry is helping people desire the right things and then feeding them what they really need rather than junk food all the time. And so I think that uh, what, what a lot of seminary students do is they just, they hold steady the, the diets that that their congregation wants, but it's all, it's basically junk food and some of it's okay, but then they try to twist their seminary training to fit into that. And I would rather try to, to figure out how am I going to change what people want? Because let's mm-hmm. ask the question, how are we doing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we're doing all that well, if you look at the culture. Mm-hmm. So is this work, is this uh, working? Are we representing uh, Jesus Christ and his religion faithfully in the culture? Um, and it was, uh, you know, well, you, you get the point. So I think you're right about that. I think it's a very sad way to approach ministry. We all believe in practical application. Sure. I need it as much as the next person. Mm-hmm. But but uh, there are certain things that you, you have to step back and, and start with, and that's knowing what you believe and why. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, very. We will return to the show in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. As a listener to this podcast, you understand the importance of ideas. Right now, the next generation of leaders in universities around the world are being taught ideas that will shape their values and how they lead. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to teach and model biblical truths and values to help students learn to think Christianly. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more. And now, back to the show. 
there's a, a Jen Wilkin quote, and she says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Oh, I love that. And I think that's, that's incredibly helpful. I also think, you know, you both having experience in ministry, I, I just want to affirm and say that I admire greatly your willingness to, to act that role with humility and say to people, I don't know, let me go find out. Stan, as you were talking about the people that you were ministering to and how, how you actually ended up in friendship with JP and JP, when you were talking, I, I noticed that I certainly resist, uh, humility where it comes in my life. That's something I have to be very conscious of. And, you know, that in the life of a pastor, someone who's in charge and in leadership, wow, that is an example for us of who we are to be in light of Christ. I I think that's a wonderful example. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I want to bring us back a little bit and get a fuller picture of how we got here to this cultural moment in the church and the culture's view in the church. And we're talking, you know, specifically about America as it's our context, but uh, we can, you know, transpose these ideas throughout the world in different places, I'm sure. Um, How did we go from being the foremost thinkers to not even having a seat at the table, not even knowing that thinking was a part of this faith? Stan, you want to no, JP, you've written so uh, so eloquently on this in your book, Love Your God With All Your Mind. In that first chapter, I'd love to have you just summarize that. I will. And there's another book uh, by a Harvard professor called The Making of the Modern University mm. that uh, will help people understand this. But the quick summary is that when the Christians came to America, the life of the mind was uh, highly valued, and the pastors were the smartest people and most educated in the community, and we started all the colleges because we valued education. But um, as America moved west, they had less and less time, and they ended up uh, sacrificing time for space. In other words, uh, they wanted more land, and they were willing to have less time that was discretionary to be able to have a larger plot of land. And as a result, they had less time to study. And then there was this this second great awakening around the time of the Civil War, which was uh, highly uh, emotional and emphasized uh, the conversion of the heart or the, uh, of your your affections and feelings, and it it did not address the mind. It should have been a both and. And mm-hmm. so that, that it really made a shift uh, because there were all kinds of people that were swept into the kingdom legitimately. But as a result of this, the idea was that you don't need to be educated to pastor a church. You just need to, quote, have, feel a call to preach, and so the, it came about that if you wanted to teach high school literature, you needed to know something. If you're going to pastor a church, you don't. You don't need to know anything. You just need to have a call uh, to preach. And then this carried on and uh, from 1880 to 1930, the universities in America went from Christian colleges with Scripture at the center of the curriculum to modern research universities that were secularized. And it took until the 60s 
for this to eventually erupt in the culture. Wow. But the, yeah. but the seed was laid by 1930. And then three decades later, my generation came along and said, well, to heck with your value system. If you can't tell me why you hold it, I'm going to have fun. And, uh, and the rest is kind of history. So what the church did, uh, Jordan, in, in light of this slow shift away from the heart and the mind uh, toward just affection and faith is that they were beginning to lose the culture. And uh, there was a meeting called in St. Louis in uh, 1918, where leaders were gathered from all over the country, and they, uh, and they all acknowledged that the, they were losing the culture to more of a liberal, uh, secularized form of Christianity that had no miracles in it, and so on. And they developed what I call a political strategy to, to, to turn things around instead of addressing ideas against ideas. And so consequently, the church began to lose the political strategy they developed. And in order to protect themselves from uh, being argued out of God, as you put it earlier, uh, because all the smart people now were becoming secular, what the church did to protect herself was to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, reason and evidence can't hurt us because our religion doesn't have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. It's just a choice of whether you want to believe or not. Uh, and so that was a protective strategy. And it has helped keep people safe from having to do their homework now for over half a century. And it's been able, it's enabled people's laziness. Uh, and so it was a strategy uh, to keep the people of God from being harmed by thinkers that could hurt us. Mm. And unfortunately, we became our own grave diggers. Yikes. Oz Guinness has a great book by that name. And I think uh, that's so well summarized. And, you know, there were other currents afoot. And uh, I've learned a lot of these as you've taught on these things, JP, but, you know, there are enlightenment ideas from, say, David Hume and Immanuel Kant and others that really led to uh, some, of the, some, some of the critiques of Christianity being just about uh, values and not about facts. Uh, there were critiques uh, of uh, German higher criticism on the Bible to suggest that it's not actually true or, or, or something that we can trust. Uh, there was the increasing scientism that indicated or argued that we can only know things that we can prove scientifically. And actually, it was the first time in our history as a people, uh, Christians, that we didn't respond. Attacks on the faith are not new. They go back to the you know, early second century. But all through history, the the people of God have stood up and said, no, they're good responses to these critiques and made the case and won the day. But for the first time in our history, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, we didn't. And we ended up withdrawing and uh, uh, making our uh, own Christian spaces uh, as opposed to being involved in this debate. And in fact, a lot of the Christian colleges were founded in that era because we were withdrawing from the broader public institutions of higher learning. And uh, so, yeah, we've sort of tried to take our ball and go home. And so we've been 
out of the conversation now for what, 75 years, maybe. I think that's an excellent uh, uh, summary of that, Stan. I think the takeaway, Jordan, uh, for me, and I'm sure Stan, uh, is that you can't define Christianity and what it what are its priorities by a sociological analysis of what the evangelical community values. Mm. Uh, by the way, that's important for child raising because you don't want to raise your kids just on the values of the evangelical subculture mm-hmm. uh, because some of those are legalistic and you want to raise them on biblically based principles. So I think a lot of people like that student that you talked to, Stan, uh, and uh, and that you've talked to, Jordan, that uh, who say, you know, well, I just, you know, you know, at the end of the day, it's about loving Jesus and how is this going to work in my ministry, are not recognizing that it's wrong to build a philosophy of ministry on what you see valued in the current church, because maybe the church is is weak and dysfunctional at this particular point in history, which I think it is. So we're called to be change agents, not accommodationists. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, too, to hear you both talk about when I picture attacks against the church, what I picture is um, men in dark clothing with a very malicious mustaches, you know, drumming their fingers together, wearing all black and deciding about how to dismantle the church. And what I'm hearing from both of you is that as much of that has come from within the church as from without those dual waves are just crashing in. And it was, it was too much. We can be our own grave diggers. Uh, that is a really great book by Askinis. We'll link all of these, by the way, in the show notes. So if you missed some of the books that we referenced earlier, we will happily link those and you can dive right in. Thanks, Jordan. The way I've articulated this in something I've written a, a blog series was that the church responded to these attacks in three different ways. And two of them were horrible ways to respond and uh, only a few took the right path. The first response was surrender, just to acquiesce and accept the critiques and say, yes, there is no truth to this. And then there was a group that retreated and said, no, we're going to, you know, still believe what we we believe. We're not going to just surrender and say, yeah, this stuff isn't true at all. We're going to retreat and say, well, it's true for us, but we're in our enclave and we'll have to engage in the broader conversation. And then just a few engaged. And that's what I, I am arguing and what I write and when I speak that we all ought to be about is engaging these ideas in this conversation and the culture, not withdrawing and retreating or surrendering to, to the, uh, the arguments against the faith. Hmm. Uh, Jordan, uh, you and Stan and our audience probably knows the name Jordan Peterson Mm -hmm. uh, as a Canadian professor who uh, has taken a pretty solid stand for an awful lot of things that are uh, uh, politically incorrect, and uh, I think pretty solid from a Christian worldview perspective. I don't know ultimately where he is personally, but that's not what I'm about right now. But just the other day, I was uh, watching one of his videos, and he was asked the question, get, you know, given the uh, the chaos and the culture and the fact that there's no such thing as personal responsibility and truth uh, outside of science is no longer treasured. And he said, how do we get 
how do we get here? And Peterson said, I think ultimately it's got to be laid at the feet of the universities. Wow. What Stan and I have done is kind of given a fuller background as to what led up to that problem. But the universities are now indoctrination centers for leftist to secular progressive thought. And postmodern neo-Marxist relativism and pure scientific naturalism that science alone gives us uh, knowledge and truth are really the worldviews that are being indoctrinated into students uh, at the universities. And we have to find uh, not everybody's called to be a scholar by any means, but what this does mean is that the church must see itself as a training center in addition to a hospital, because Lord knows it has to be a hospital. We're broken, but it's also an equipping, mobilizing trainings. It's a both and, mm. and that's why that's so important. Yeah, I, I think there has been a, a shift that I observed, even even in my lifetime, I, I had the privilege of growing up in the church and I noticed there was a change that happened kind of as I was in college, sort of as I have engaged the church as an adult, where small group leaders became small group facilitators. And I think that shift, just that idea is huge. I was once told, you know, Jordan, don't worry about the teaching. All you have to do is press play. Yeah. We just saw the evaporation of a generation of great teachers or people who were becoming great teachers. Well, it has to be a value. And I think that raises for me the question, and I would really love Stan to hear your take on this, about what exactly does a Christian mind look like? I mean, if we're, if we're going to be interested in developing, I mean, let me tell as a father and a grandfather, I cannot tell you how important it's been for me to have an increasingly growing and developed Christian mind in those roles. Now, forget mm-hmm. teaching, forget letters to the editor, forget mm-hmm. talk radio, forget uh, hanging out in the coffee uh, at the water cooler at work and being able to kind of initiate and respond, all that's important, but I'm just talking about being a dad and a grandpa. Mm. Uh, uh, And so I think a maturing Christian mind is a mind that is increasingly understanding the world and seeing it through biblical and related categories. Uh, It's a mind that has shaped a set of facts and and principles and ways of thinking and values and and so forth that have been highly informed by 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 scripture but then also by the great the great thinkers in the history of the church and by well thought out unbelievers i mean john wesley said if you think you can't learn things from those who aren't regenerate think again and of course we all know we can but i think it's good to start if you're a novice with getting your uh, feet under you by by reading Christian thinkers. But now Mm. what that will look like is that you will start noticing things other people don't notice Mm. because you have eyes to see it. You know, a doctor can look at a sore on your arm and I can look at that sore and that doctor is going to see 10 things there. I won't be able to see because I can't, I don't know how to look for them. Same thing with a Christian mind. You begin to develop a set of categories that enables you 
to notice things that go by other people. They don't even see it, but you notice it. And so you are, you are living and thinking and initiating and responding from a, in a growingly well-formed worldview set of biblically-based and expanded categories. And I think that's so important to this whole business. Dallas Willard used to think, used to say, you wouldn't think that following Jesus Christ would, uh, would require for you to be stupid now, would you? Mm. Um, and he said, you know, don't you think you should be as thoughtful as you can? Now we're all in different places and we're not all called to be scholars, but we can all kick our game up and get a, get a little bit more rooted with our Christian mind. Stan, do you want to push back or add, or what do you think about that? No, I wouldn't push back. I, I'd say just to frame it in a different way, in the, the way I think about it is the Christian mind is a mind that has developed habits of thinking Christianly or integrating the biblical worldview and all of life. And when I say integrating, some people have uh, pushed back on that term to argue, well, all truth is already God's truth. So there is no integration. It's already integrated. I mean, it in, in an epistemic sense that since the enlightenment, the two have been torn apart. And, and so when I say integrate faith and life, it is reintegrating what, what is truly already one thing, all of reality and all, all that we can know is already God's truth but we tend to think of them as separate things. So it's integrating in that sense, faith. And when I say faith, I don't mean a subjective experience. Uh, it could be used in that way. I mean, by faith, the content of the faith, the biblical worldview integrated with all of life, with our family, work, church issues in the public square and the culture. How do we bring the biblical worldview broadly construed to include thinkers who maybe aren't even Christians, as you said, but the biblical worldview, nonetheless, into those conversations, into our thinking, into our, our articulation of ways to be and ways to seek shalom in those contexts. Mm, excellent. So we're kind of coming to the end here. Is there anything else we want our listeners to know before we send them on their way until next month? Well, I might close with two things and then stand. Uh, the first one is, don't think that you can't do this. You, you can. Um, you don't have to compare yourself with somebody that's been called to do this full time their whole life. That, that's ridiculous. But everybody can can learn a little bit more about why they believe what they do and invest a little bit more in books on tape or reading or becoming a part of a small group that's doing a book study or something. Uh, so, so everybody can do this. Secondly, don't give up if you're energized about this, but nobody else is. Hmm. Try to find a few other like-minded people and encourage each other to keep growing and reading. And so it's okay if not everybody's with you, but if you can get a, a few, then at least you're not alone. So don't let that discourage you. You have to start somewhere. Hmm. Thank you. What about you, Stan? That's helpful, JP. I think what I'd add is when Jesus is asked in Luke 10, 27, what the greatest commandment is, he says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I want to steer a course 
as we continue our conversations between two extremes. One extreme is that uh, the mind is more important than any other part of us. Mm. No, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all dimensions of your being fully. So that would be uh, not being faithful to the, the, the Lord's clear teaching that we need to love him also with our hearts and strengths. The other extreme, though, is to not love the Lord our God with our minds and just love him with our strengths and our hearts, okay? And I think that's more the danger we face in this time, in this period, in our culture, in our situation now. So I would hate to come across uh, to listeners like we are, at least I am saying this is the only thing that's important to love God with your mind. And I don't know, uh, JP and Jordan, you wouldn't say that either. Uh, But I do want to also say the other extreme is our danger and where we need to shore up our love a bit. And that is, uh, again, in uh, terms of loving God with our minds, from my perspective. Hmm. Would you agree with that, JP? Is that? Uh, Dead center. Absolutely dead center. You bet. Mm -hmm. And this podcast hopefully can can bring some of those people together. If you feel, if you feel like your friends are not necessarily on the same page with you about loving God with your mind, or, you know, as Stan just said, having a a fully integrated love of God, if you're feeling a little bit out of place, we hope that this podcast can be a place for you and a resource for you and something that you can point to that, you know, you're not alone. There are great thinkers in Christianity, both today and in the past. Um, we get the benefit of a whole cloud of witnesses. And as we have these conversations, hopefully they can be edifying to, to all of us, but especially those of us who maybe feel a bit like we, we can't quite find our place in this faith community. We hope we can help you do that. It's a good word. That is a good word. Anything else we'd like to mention before we go? No. I don't think so. This is going to be a lot of fun. Let's let's do it again next month. Yes. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of this inaugural edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts where you can find more information and the resources we discussed, as well as share your thoughts to keep the conversation going. If you found this conversation helpful, spread the word by leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform and share this podcast with others who may enjoy the conversation. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to share God's truth and grace with their students and colleagues. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank encouraging you to think Christianly.